0: Welcome to Reactive Episode Two. My name is Khalil, and I'm here with
1: Henning. Hey, how's it going? And Raquel.
2: Hi, I'm back.
1: Woohoo! Yay, <laughs> Raquel's back. Where Where were you last time?
2: Uh, I was I was in, in New York City, um, and I was like a, a resident. It's like a hacker in residence uh, at the Recurse Center, which used to be called the Hacker School. Um, but basically, a lot of people like to liken it to a boot camp, uh, like you hear about, like Hack Reactor or whatever. Uh, but this is actually totally different. It's like a writer's retreat, but for coders. So the idea is you spend three months hanging out at the, at the Recurse Center, and it's completely unstructured. You just kind of decide, okay, this week, I'm going to learn Lua. Or whatever, right? Like it can be Lua, it can be PHP, it can be uh, Assembly, it can be Perl, it can be whatever thing you want. Or maybe like it was, it's been your dream to write your own compiler in Python, and you just go and hang out for three months. Uh, you, You have to go through like an application process and all of that, but if you're selected, it's totally free, and you just go for three months. And then there are people to guide you if you have questions or need to pair a program with somebody. And then there are residents who are just kind of people in the industry who come in for a week or two and hang out and pair a program with you or give workshops. So what I did is I did four workshops over the course of the four days that I was there because it's the the program is mandatory Monday through Thursday. And then Friday is kind of like an optional day. And so some people will take three day weekends, but other people will go into the space and do things like job interview practices, or there's like a thing they do called craft noon where they just kind of hang out in the afternoons on Friday and like do crafty things like knitting or sewing or embroidery or whatever. Um, and it's super fantastic. It's a lot, a lot of fun. I had such a blast that I'm going to try to go again sometime maybe next year just because New York is an amazing city and this program is super, super cool. And, yeah, I I, I was super impressed and totally honored to be invited for even just a week.
1: <laughs> awesome. It, so, is how, is it, sorry, sorry, go
2: ahead. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> <All> <laughs> happened.
1: What
0: happened on. here? Bring yes. Them. Okay. Uh, how old are those people that go to that They.
2: Thing? Oh, my goodness. They're – Every age, every age, like there's, there are people, there were like students who are still in university. And so it was just like their summer vacation. And they were like, I'm going to apply to this program over summer break and then I'll go back to school. But then it was all the way up to seasoned professionals, like people who've been doing this for a while and just wanted to take three months off to do whatever. Um, And, and everybody in between there are people, you have to be able to program at least fizzbuzz or the equivalent before you start. So, like, part of the application process is write FizzBuzz or whatever. Um, And if you're not familiar with FizzBuzz, it's a really, really simple program. It's basically like uh, if a person inputs a number, then you take that number. And if it's a multiple of three, then you output Fizz. If it's a multiple of five, then output Buzz. But if it's a multiple of three and five, output FizzBuzz and if it's neither a multiple of three nor a multiple of five, then don't output anything or something like that. Sounds so like it's a lot
0: of uh, if statements.
2: A <laughs> lot of ifs, use a bit of mods, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't, it's it's the sort of thing that it doesn't matter what language you use. Yeah. Just, uh, but it, it shows enough of basic programming. And I, I think they may have changed their introductory code thing. But the point is you do need to know something about code before you can join this program. Um, but, like if as long as you have some notion, like it. after that, there's just like, there's more of an application process, but it's, it's a really cool group of people. Um, I met somebody who used to be a middle school teacher, uh, who decided that they wanted to get into code. I met some people who have been coding for years and years and years, but really wanted to take some time out to write a BitTorrent client in Python. So cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it's pretty neat it's an it's a nice mix of people of every age every experience level um yeah Henry, so does it you have ask? a
1: fixed yes. beginning and end or do people just rotate in and out of this for three so,
2: months yeah so it's so you have like a, a a group like a cohort of people that you are in the program with and so like those have set start dates and end dates But the way that they're doing it right now, and the other thing is that they're constantly iterating, like they're constantly trying to figure out just the right magic formula. Um, So what they do is they have like a summer one session, which overlapped with the spring, with the second half of the spring two session, and then also overlaps with the summer two session. So at any moment, you'll have two sessions at the same time, but one will start kind of like a month and a half before the next one. So they're offset by a month and a half. But then, um, so that there's like a constant overlap of people. So like the slightly more experienced recursors, quote unquote, uh, can can pass on information to the next group of recursors, which is what they call themselves if you are part of the recurse center. So. Very
1: cool. So did you get invited to this or did you apply for this? How did that work?
2: I I just got an email. I got an email and they were like, Hey, do you want to do this thing? And I was like, uh, yes. (laughs) 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 Because something like three or four years ago, I remember seeing hacker school for the first time online. And I was like, Oh my God, I need you to do this program. Like that was before I got into web programming at all. And I was like, this was, this is going to be an amazing opportunity. I've got to get in on this. But at the time, so this is how much things have iterated. At the time, it was free, but it was it's really expensive to live in New York City. So they didn't have any sorts of scholarships for living in New York City or uh, any assistance really on how to do all these things. They were it was probably like one of the first or second like groups of people that they had in in their program. And so I, it just wasn't the right time for me. i couldn't I couldn't do it. Uh, and I was really, really, really sad about that. But then, But then, you know, fast forward three or four years, I've started playing around with Node, and I got into the web community. And now all of a sudden, they think I know enough to go in and, you know, be a mentor of sorts to these groups. And I'm just like, okay, well, that's cool.
0: (laughs) Nice. That is very cool. So how does, is it like a camp where everybody just has their rooms or something like that, or...?
2: Oh, it's, it's one huge room and then lots of little rooms on the side. And so they have like one conference room, but then every other room has a couple of tables, but most people tend to hang out in the big space. So think of it kind of like a library. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really quiet. Everybody's kind of working on whatever they want to work on. Um, It's completely unstructured. Like there's no like, okay, everybody, everyone gather together. We're now going to learn about testing like mm-hmm. that 's really the job of the the resident who 's there and says, "Today I want to talk about robots let 's all hang out and talk about robots and then like a few people will sign up and they 'll show up and they 'll be like okay i 'm going to learn about robots today and so it's it's really it 's really chill um, It kind of felt like summer camp, except there were not very many camp counselors, and all of the kids we're over 18. (laughs) Yeah. But no, but
0: what what I mean is, uh, do you, do you uh, sleep there and live there for three months or do you go home at at night?
2: No, you go home at night. You go home. Um, yeah, everybody has some place to stay, um, whether in New York city or in like surrounding towns or, or I think there was even one person who commuted from New Jersey every day, uh, which is where I am now. I'm in New Jersey right now. Mm -hmm. Um, not really doing anything, but just hanging out. Um, I grew vacation? up in New Jersey. Uh, no, no, I'm definitely working. Definitely working from home. I'm working remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the beauty of our jobs, isn't it? That mm-hmm. no matter where we are, as long as we have internet access, we can still get work done. Um, so, yeah, I'm in New Jersey right now. But I'll be back in California next week. So next week, you'll hear me from California. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, so it, it that was a really, really cool, fun program and everybody gets something different out of it.
0: But. and do people have to pay for it? No, you said it's free. It's, you free. it's free. So it's yeah. everything is there and is there like food and everything or or no, it's just a space that's and hanging out and and the, yeah. and, and the mentors are free basically.
2: Right, okay. exactly. Yeah, the way that they make their money because it's actually the Recur Center is a for-profit company. Okay. Uh, the way they make their money is They partner up with companies who, I mean, think about it, right? If you have people who are really good at learning things by themselves, Mm -hmm. they can basically learn anything. What company would be, uh, any company would be ridiculous not to jump on the opportunity to hire one of these, one of these people. Um, And so what the company, so what Recurse does is they, is they partner up with other companies in the industry. And the companies are like, okay, I'm looking for somebody who is really good at JavaScript or PHP or Ruby or even Perl or whatever. Um, and like, and then Recurse will be like, okay, we have a whole bunch of people who can do that. Like, Interview these people. And if you hire one of them, then we will take some recruiting fee. And that's how they make their money is, is off oh, of recruiting fees of people very interesting who, who graduate from the program. Yeah. And it's not even really a graduation. It's just kind of like, a, okay, you did three months of this and you have all of these projects that you worked on. And, um, you know, that was fantastic. And now go out into the world and do something awesome.
0: But do people get spammed by those companies then? Like with like, hey, we want to interview you or something.
2: Um how not, does that
0: work? How do you regulate that?
2: I mean, so it all goes through the recurse Center's like kind of staff. So they have some staff that that take care of the partnerships with companies and stuff like that. I don't as far as I know, I haven't met anybody who complained about, oh my goodness, I'm getting so spammed by all these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it because it's not like a traditional recruiting situation, like Nobody's coming at you on LinkedIn being all like, oh, I see your resume says JavaScript, but I think you'd be great at this Python position. (laughs) Um, I'm not speaking from experience or anything like that. Actually, I totally am. Uh, Yeah, no, at least as far as I know, I didn't hear anybody complaining about things like that. So from what I can tell, it's pretty chill. So I don't
0: know. I I, I find this interesting because we also... Uh, for our user groups, we also allow companies to basically um, put up like job stuff, and mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and for us it was a real question like how much access do we want to give companies to to people, and we're thinking about different different ways because because uh, yeah, I I could think like, if you if you don't regulate it, if you don't have staff like the Recurse Center does it, then then it could. It, it get a little unwieldy maybe but absolutely But if they regulate it somehow and they also maybe they also know who's actually interested who might be interested in in a job or people who are absolutely not interested in, in interviewing and stuff like that
2: yeah definitely i don't think the partner companies have direct access to the recursors i think they have to go through the staff and then yeah. the staff set the, set people up because otherwise like there's no point in wasting what little little time you have in your three months of coders retreat Right, like yeah. So uh, I think I think they definitely protect recursors to make sure that they're not being hounded by companies, right? And uh, they
0: they're also interested in finding good matches as well.
2: I'm yes, because sure. they make very much. That. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, definitely.
0: Very so, interesting.
2: Yeah, that was a lot of fun. A lot, a lot of fun. Um, so we talked about lots and lots of different things at the Recur Center, um, but one thing I wanted to kind of bring up. Uh, with with everyone here is actually so one of the biggest problems that I've at least noticed in kind of the internet world of things is is search. Search is like inherently impossible. I think I think you need to like to have a really good search engine. You need to hire somebody who has like a PhD in internet searching or something because it's just so hard. Do you know what I mean? Like like. I feel like the reason why Google is such a big deal and did so much better than like, Oh goodness, I'm going to date no. myself, but yeah. Like, but no, I'm thinking of like Alta Vista. Ones. Alta Vista. Yeah. 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 Uh, I just, I think, I think the reason they did so well is because Google came up with a really good search algorithm, but I think algorithms are really hard. Like one of the things that we've been doing at NPM is like one of our biggest complaints is, "Oh my God, your search is terrible," and we're like, "We know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I've heard <laughs> we're that so a lot. sorry." Yeah. <laughs> but for npm, is that really just an algorithm problem? I mean, there's um, there's all sorts of factors that play into that. I mean, I guess you're talking about right finding the package that you were that you want to find, correct?
2: Right, right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's all different parts of search, right? Like there's the there's the very basic plain text search, like. I have a package named Fubar. um, where, like, what's the URL for that package Fubar? And for like, just before I left for New York city, I actually fixed the search so that when you put in an exact name search, it actually brought it up as the first item, like 90% of the time. So which before it wasn't even doing that. I was <laughs> so like, Oh gosh, <laughs> we were like, I know the name of my package. I just put it in the search bar. And it's not even on the first page. Mm -hmm. What the heck is that? I've noticed
1: Um, that too. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, No, it was really bad. But hopefully that's better now. Uh, It's actually,
0: it's actually better, but it's still like, to me, that should be like the number one hit, but it's still like number 10 or something at the bottom.
2: Is it? Even, even within the last week?
0: Uh, The last (laughs) week. No, I didn't, I didn't check the last week, but that was, it was like two or three weeks ago or so. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. That was definitely the major problem. Uh, Hopefully. So Everybody who's listening right now, go on to npmjs.com and search for your favorite package. And if it's if it's not the first or even the second thing on the list, open an issue, please. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, okay. No, uh, it works. <laughs> it
0: works. I just tested it. I just tested it.
2: <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, it's the sort of thing that like just getting that right. So we use Elasticsearch for our, our, our basic like text searching. And it's hard. Like I've been trying to mess with the algorithm on that a lot, but then to Henning's point, there's so much more to search than just the using the search bar, right? Like there's uh, it's, it's all about, it's all about discoverability and no, like being like, okay, I need a package that handles, I don't know, common log format Well, do you put in common log format in the search bar? Do you put CLF? What if somebody has named their common log format module something silly like I don't know, peekaboo? I don't know, whatever. Like people name things super weird, and then they don't. Yeah, and those
1: are things that they're not under, they're not in your control, right? And it it all depends on what what kind of information people put in their packages, and that's what you can then go off. But even if Even if you were to find, I mean, another problem, even if you were to find, let's say, like you were saying, the the common log format package, if you get a hit, you get 10 10 results, right? Mm -hmm. How do you know which one is the best or the one that you want, right? Yeah. That's what I would really be interested in. That, I don't even know how you would solve that.
2: I don't know either. Like, we've tried doing things like putting... Like giving a higher weight to things that have the search term in multiple places. So, like, you want it, like, if it's the word, I don't know, common long format or the phrase common long format, if it's in the name and the description and the README and it's in the README like 12 times, then probably it's more, it's better suited than something that only mentions it once in the README. Because maybe it's referencing something else, um, but like it's just algorithmically really, really tough. And then, do you balance the stars? Do you balance the download counts? Like, if something mm-hmm. has, yeah. you know, it's mm, I don't know. Well, do
1: you do the the download counts or those? Um, are those unique? Do you somehow, um, you know, bring those down to unique users, or is it pure counts of downloads?
2: Right now, our Downloads API just counts the pure number of downloads. So okay. if you if you install a package that depends on another package, so package A depends on package B, when you download package A, we're also counting that package B was downloaded too. Right. So it's it's not the most useful metric as it could be. I mean, it's still nice, right? Because if other packages depend on... Your package, then that increases your download numbers, but I don't know. I don't think it's the most accurate.
1: Yeah, you have to be aware of of the the weirdnesses there. I have a I have a package. It's not it's not an npm package. It's actually a packages, it's PHP, and I was so excited because I was getting thousands of downloads, and it's got like ten thousand now. I think nice. And um, yeah, I thought so too. And uh, then I went on GitHub and looked at the unique users. And it's basically just a handful. And so what I've figured out or what I'm, I'm guessing is that um, a bunch of companies must have this, you know, and, and uh, include this. And their CI server runs, you know, I don't know, several times a day or several times an hour. Oh, so it's, yes. you know, it gets several hundred downloads per day. But it's, <laughs> it's you know, that, that doesn't mean anything. It's right. totally meaningless. So um, that's a very deceptive thing, too. Oh. <laughs> so, those are things you have to consider too. And I don't, I don't, that's just why yeah. I said this is like a really, really hard problem because you don't even have control over a lot of these parameters. And if somebody just writes a crappy readme, that's not your fault, right? You can't find yeah. it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. Exactly. No, totally. Like people, people have asked us to start taking into account, like, well, if the tests don't pass, then it shouldn't, it shouldn't be as highly ranked. It's like, well, wow, now we have to add, like, calls to whatever their CI is and then, like, look at their badges and all of this different stuff. We get lots of people who are like, wow, how come I got so many, like, nobody knows about my package. I'm just (laughs) one simple little developer, and I wrote this little thing that just spits out the alphabet or whatever. And they're like, how did I get 9,000 downloads? That doesn't make any sense. And we're like, bots. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That, yeah. So download your package, and I'm sorry, but don't you feel special? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, there's a very – because you said that, you know, now you have to start including all these other things um, like the CI server, et cetera. Um, there's a very interesting project in the Ember community. It's called Ember Observer, and it actually um, is a hand-curated or human-curated um, list of Ember packages on NPM – and they take all sorts of things into account. Um, so if you have a properly, you know formatted or, or a certain size of a readme, if you have collaborators on your GitHub um, repository, if you have tests, and things like that, so they have certain weights for all of these things, and then you can you basically get a, a grade for it. So that's how you can maybe more more um, Accurately distinguish between, you know, the better of three packages that do the same thing.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Do, yeah. Is that is that open source? Do you know.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, it's actually emberobserver.com. dot com. It's all one word. Cool. And
2: let's, uh, let's put that. Th- let's put that in the show notes.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. There's also a talk um, at uh, EmberConf. The uh, uh, creator of that gave a talk um, on that, but it's not, you know this doesn't really scale right if you have to do this manually um so I don't know how you would you can maybe automate it to some degree but not entirely. maybe
2: I think I think maybe you could like if you could have like a background process that runs once a day like for us our downloads are actually compiled only once a day and Mm. most people don't notice that's fine Right. Um, because it's one of those numbers that you don't need to be constantly adding up at every single second of the day. You really want more of a daily understanding of how your package is doing as opposed to a minute by minute. Mm-hmm. And so I think it could be it could like, you know, we have a very service oriented architecture at NPM. So there's no reason we couldn't do something like have a, a like a service. A search service that that just kind of compiles all this data about different packages. The only downside is there are a lot of packages. A lot, a lot of packages. So how do we do that in a time efficient manner to like get all this data for everything? Especially if we're making multiple API calls everywhere. So I don't know.
0: Hmm. So what were the most important improvements that you made to search? Recently, anything interesting that that you learned?
2: Yeah, um, so definitely. So I think I mentioned we use Elasticsearch. And yeah. Elasticsearch has a really interesting API. Uh, like it, Like their docs are really, really well laid out. But sometimes figuring out how everything works is a little tricky. So you need to like, it's a lot of playing around and just kind of playing with different ways of, of matching things and what kind of boosts to put on things. Like I found that if I increase the boost for the exact name match, that definitely put exact name matches higher up on the search results, which is how we managed to bring exact name packages back up to the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and we weren't doing that before. So it's a lot of like, trial and error and just figuring out like just playing around with the numbers and i'm sure there's a much more scientific way of doing things but i have neither the time nor nor really the uh the expertise to just get there so it's it's hard
1: it's yeah
0: yes yeah, it's, it's very interesting because it really is very hard to to conclude anything from the data that you actually have hmm right so is the, it's always the developers that fill out the little package JSON. And then you have some, and very often people are, also, I'm sure I'm um, not necessarily super excited to fill out good keywords and stuff right. like that. Right.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, it's like the new SEO. It's no. totally the new SEO.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So do you have any plans on how to to tackle this or just, like you said, trial and error?
2: Lots of trial and error. I mean, our team is going to be growing quite a bit soon. So I think that's going to help bring more ideas of how to do it. Because I'm kind of just like staring at the search and just being like, we need to make this better. But I don't know how. Maybe if I ask more people. And so... um, all our dear listeners, if you have ideas, reach out. Totally reach out. Um, also, NPM Search is totally open source. So if you have, uh, you can take a look at it and, um, you know, give us suggestions via PRs or just issues or whatever. And we would love to hear from you. Um, or if you just want to talk about search in general, you know, ping me on Twitter. Stuff like that. So,
1: yeah. That is yeah. a very intriguing problem. <laughs> no, do you somehow pre-process the data before you put in ElasticSearch or I mean do you do anything to the description that's in the in the in the package json
2: to um, filter
1: anything out or
2: We don't do filter Yeah, we don't filter anything out, but we do we have a follower that like every time our databases are updated, we update the ElasticSearch. So um like if you if you publish a new version of a module or just publish a new module or whatever, then that that information goes back up into uh, into Elasticsearch. So that's when things get updated. Um, but otherwise, no. It's it's mostly just full text. We don't we don't do too much pre processing, which might help. I don't know. I don't know. It's so yeah, you'd hard. have to
1: start like a research project to find out. Okay, I'm interested in this now actually go and manually find the best package in that specific search, and then figure out why it is the best package and see if there's any patterns.
2: <laughs>
1: but, oh, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's,
2: it's hard.
0: A lot of time <laughs> going through yeah. that. Yeah. In, and in Elasticsearch, um, is that, what is that? Is that Java as uh, a built with Java. Java or something like that? I
2: think so. I think it is Java. Yeah, CouchDB is Erlang. You have to mm-hmm. like keep remembering the, the the you know yeah yeah Elasticsearch is Java, mm-hmm. which makes for really entertaining stack traces when you break something. <laughs> 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 I'm just like, what's going on? Why is it so angry at me?
0: Yeah, I love <laughs> I love the thing with with Java is always like every single Java application that I had to do something with, like do the front end for or something mm-hmm. like that, was always there was always the case that you would start up the server and then st- there would be a stack trace of stuff, warnings, errors and stuff. And uh, the general the general kind of thing, when you ask, okay, what is this? What do I do with this? Well, ah, you can ignore that. And so I'm, co- I'm totally used to, like, when it comes to Java, like stack traces mean nothing. Unless, unless your server doesn't boot, then you have a bigger stack trace, and then you have to kind of find out which ones are the relevant ones, which ones were the ones that you can just ignore <laughs> and stuff like oh, that. It's, no. it's absolutely uh it's absolutely insane to me. I I it drives me crazy crazy this kind of stuff. I'm happy I don't have to do anything with uh Java stack traces currently.
2: Yeah. <laughs> just
1: ignore them. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh goodness. Funny. Oh goodness. Yeah. So Cool. So, uh, Khalil, you you have some fun reactive programming. Something about streams. Uh,
0: So uh, yeah. So I'm I'm kind of (laughs) so so uh, reactive programming and reactive extensions is kind of a little bit on my mind recently because I've been. Uh, looking at uh, I've been watching some talks by uh, Jafar Hussein who we have mentioned last week already and also I am involved in a project where we are starting up writing angular an angular app currently and we are committed to kind of go to, to kind of follow the follow the the the, the migration path and um, as soon as it becomes clear to angular 2 because angular 2 is supposed to be coming you know at the end of the year or something like that and um it it has some features that that we are interested in interested in so for instance the performance is supposed to be better it's also supposed to be um kind of uh, uh kind of uh very good for for mobile web applications Stuff like that so so we are interested in 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 writing Angular One code um so that we have not a lot of problems when we want uh when we go over to the next version and the whole thing i don't know if 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 you guys know this, but Angular Two is like a huge rewrite right so there's mm-hmm. there's like ton like tons of breaking changes and it's it just works completely different internally. And uh, so they put in a virtual DOM and stuff like that. So it it works a lot more like Ember and React are work, uh, working right now than than it than Angular one basically. So uh, <clears throat> so this is an interesting topic, especially um, if you're just starting up, right? If you're starting up with an application right now, it it does make sense to to pay attention to how do I structure my code so that. And how do I what kind of patterns do I have to use so that I basically can just flip a switch and maybe make a few changes, and then that should work and so so one of the things that kind of popped up in this whole thing is um that they're supposedly not supposedly they're obviously embracing reactive extensions somehow, and for instance, the whole h t t p layer, so talking to a server. Um, In Angular 1, it used to be like its own service that was kind of baked into the framework because it had that um, digest loop. So there was some sort of a a loop going on where the framework would check if there were any changes, if there are any changes in the scope in your variables and then change the ui according to the changes that were made and the http thing was kind of baked into that so that you know if you get back a promise and a promise resolves the angular knows about it and can update the ui right um so this this whole kind of this kind of architecture is gone in angular 2 and what they're embracing is reactive um extensions and and promises basically so Um, if i understood it correctly and i'm also i'm i'm uh yeah it's a little bit difficult because there's a a lot of those a lot of that information i'm kind of kind of building up the knowledge building up right now like there's and there's uh all kinds of different sources and some of it might change whatever but as as far as i understand there's going to be uh, you can use just uh, any kind of XHR layer that returns a promise. And then on top of that, you, uh, you turn it into, into an observable. And so here's what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to try to explain what observables are. So observables, that is something, something that you can get, that you, that, that you can use if you use reactive extensions. And there is a library that's called RxJS and it's for microsoft and they they made uh, reactive extensions also for net and some other languages i think for java and something else <clears throat> i don't know if they have uh if they made that for php as well but um so can you
1: explain what uh, reactive extensions are
0: yeah so uh, reactive extensions um so so far so far i only know about two patterns that it or to kind of poly polyfills that it that it um, su- supplies you basically that that it gives you, and um, I think it's more important to talk about the observable, which is I think one of the as far as I've seen one of the most important uh, um, kind of patterns that you can get from the re- reactive extensions, and so so basically how Jafar Hussein uh, likes to explain it is that when the gang of 4 wrote their book about the whole, all those patterns there was this one pattern called the iterator and and then the other and then uh this other pattern called the um observer pattern and those patterns are kind of similar but they like the data com- goes in different directions so from when you when you use an iterator you can call next on that iterator, and it will give you data. And when it doesn't have any data anymore, it will tell you, "Okay, uh, I don't have any data anymore. It's it's this is the end." Okay. And if if it and if it uh, tried to 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 give you data or retrieve data and I'd send it to you, and there's an error, it will tell you that there's an error. So there's error handling, and there's an end event, and you can uh, and you're pulling data because because you the consumer you're saying. Okay, um, please give me more data. Please give me more data. Oh, you don't have anything anymore. Fine, I'm going to do something else or whatever. Right, or oh, I'm done. And um, and so and on the other side, he said there's something that is actually uh, that pushes data that is very similar, but uh, it lacks a few characteristics from the iterator. So it's almost like the iterator, but the other way around. And that's the observer pattern. And the observer pattern. Uh, is you can subscribe to um to to an object and then and then you the consumer you wait and then it will push events towards you right and you will be notified if there's data um but what so what basically it 's almost a mirror of the iterator pattern where the iterator pattern is something that you pull and the observer pattern is something that pushes data towards you but the observer pattern misses those two characteristics that the iterator has which is an end event and error handling right so it so the observer with the observer pattern you don't the, the thing that you observe will never tell you i'm done right and if there and if there is an error something went wrong with that object that you were observing it will not give you an error and tell you oh something happened right so um so far so good right
1: yes i'm with you
0: okay (laughs) okay
2: i think i'm following
0: (laughs) okay so basically what the observable is as you can hear it's like a mixture of the two words iterable and observer right it adds in those two things it gives the observer pattern it adds an end event and error handling right okay so so when you have an observer, so when you when you, when there's a something that is an observable like an object that is an observable you can subscribe to that and it will send you data and and um it can and when it doesn't have any data anymore it will send an end event and if something went wrong then it will send you an error so what you can wrap into an observer is for instance an ajax request for instance can be wrapped in an observable. And then you can actually, you can subscribe to that and then it will, you know, send you data and say, okay, no, I'm done. I don't have any data anymore. And, uh, and also, it's like, it's like a promise, basically. But, but what is the kicker is that you can, it can send you, it can, it's the, like a promise is just one value. So the promise resolves to one value and then it's done. And the observable can give you more values over time, and and what and so what that allows you to do is to work with the data that you get from the observable is to um, work with uh, functional programming to transform that data that you're getting. So, for instance, you can you can you can wrap any any kind of any any event. That happens in the UI, you can wrap those in observables, so you can say all uh, the m- mouse clicks are all the mouse clicks are wrapped in one observable so the the mouse click event basically right so there's so there's basically the possibility to if you want to map um, if you want to detect with functional programming um, I don't know if I'm going to able to put this together again but you can so basically you can say uh, listen exactly so what it does it 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 sends you those mouse events the observable sends that data and you can you can and you will receive those and you will receive receive them as a list over time basically so what you can do with functional programming is you can see say I think you say basically you say map uh, or at some point you have to wait. I think maybe you have to wait first. You wait for 500 milliseconds and then you get, and then you can can map over that and then you can do something with those events because what you get back is like an array of all the mouse clicks that happened in those 500 milliseconds, right? Okay. And when you have that array then it's and it's just an array and you can you can map filter reduce do whatever you can see okay and those uh did, it double, did a double double click happen in in that time frame or did it not happen um and then do i want to react to that in some fashion or do i want to store whatever store that stuff somewhere it doesn't matter what's maybe um so the same thing you can also do with like uh with keyboard events so if if you you make, uh, so you observe an an input field and somebody's typing, you can say, okay, this, I'm going to make uh, the, I'm going to make the keyboard events, what is a key up or key down or something like that, an observable. And I'm just going to, I'm going to observe 500 milliseconds, basically debounce that. And whatever happened during that time, if there's new, uh, a new values in that input field, I'm going to receive that as, um, as an array. And then I can do whatever I want with that. Also, map filter reduce. It's just, uh, from then on, it's just an array.
2: Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Keep going.
0: So so what I'm trying to say is that you can do um, that observables, basically, you can describe them as um, collections of data, but over time. Right. Right?
2: So kind of like so i am okay, first of all, I always translate things into my head like i'm a five year old this is just how I program my brain um so I'm, I'm i'm trying to I'm like following what you're saying, and then I'm trying to like come up with like a five year old level ex, like example of why this would be useful. so I'm kind of right. thinking, tell me if this is if this is totally off, but I'm thinking like let's say you're playing a game like uh you know doom or something uh and so you're you're going through this like two dimensional or this three-dimensional world in your in your screen and so you're you're like using all your arrow keys but then you have the little map in the bottom corner of like how far you've gone so you could like you could you could make an observable of all of your your arrow keys mm-hmm. and then as you're moving along the array of all of those arrow keys is being saved and you can actually draw that map in real time of like, like if there was like a line showing where you've gone so far, mm-hmm. uh, you could just keep drawing that over and over again. Because as that array gets bigger, the line gets bigger, and so you can you can basically watch all of those things at the same time, right? Like like is is that kind of what you're saying? Like like you could yeah. you could like follow some of that information and then use use the information that you've gained from that observable to build something else.
0: Yeah. So exactly, and it cool. would also it would only be it would only be a few uh, functions that you would chain in order to to achieve that. I think one one. So basically, it, the benefit of using an observable is that you you kind of when you work with data, you work and you do functional programming. You you use the maps and reduces and stuff like that. Um, so, if you do that generally if if your data is in arrays and you work with functions already and you compose your functions and then you add observables to that, then you you would also work with events in the same exact way. so that makes it easier for for you to think about all that stuff because you're just working with it in the same way and then on top of that to 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 kind of for instance get paths like you just basically describe. From from events that happen on the screen, it only takes like a few chain functions to achieve that, and it's just like that. Over time, you get those that data in, and you just you just transform it into uh, you know points on the on the map or whatever that get drawn or something like that, and you do it continuously, and it and it's uh, it's very very terse. It, it doesn't take a lot a lot of code to achieve that. Right? That's cool. Yeah.
1: Cool.
0: So and uh yeah so I'm I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around that and uh but I find that really really compelling very interesting and it it really works well also with immutable data for instance what the what what kind of got introduced in the in the you know new javascript front end world via react i mean it's an older concept that i th- as far as i know as I, as i i've learned also comes from the functional programming kind of paradigm and uh so it works well with that as well because you when you work with uh when you comp- when you have an array with data and then you you have uh, you chain some functions um you to transform that data um, on that array, then you're not changing the array itself. You, you're taking out you're taking out the data and you're transforming that information and you're, putting, you're doing some operations and you spit it out into a different variable or something like that. But you never really you never mutate the original thing, right? Okay. So so that also goes hand in hand kind of with that and so what you can also do is like you can make a you can make a um a lot of things into an observable so you can also there's a function uh, in the library in the rxjs library there's a, on on the observable um uh, object there is a function called from promise i think and so you can say rx observable from promise and then you have like an ajax request and then and then um, you can store that uh basic that observable that you created from the promise into a variable and then other uh like components can subscribe to that and can say okay I wanna I wanna get notified and um so that's just a very simple way you don't do a lot of with that but it, it kind of um it kind of is the way how supposedly in in Angular they will deal with um Talking to talking to the server and kind of getting getting the information that's coming from the server into your application and into your UI, which which kind of triggers this whole okay I have to find out how this all works and then how do I use it with how do I architect my application with that, and um, then there's another pattern that comes with the the uh, reactive extensions which is called a subject, and a subject is basically is has the characteristics of an observable but it can also um emit data so you can subscribe to it but it can also trigger you can you can also trigger it basically so an observable you can only subscribe to and you can then you know receive the data and do something uh with it but with a subject you can also be the one that basically emits the event you can tell it to emit an event so and those subjects is basically a subject you can think about it like like an event emitter because you can tell him okay this is uh, I want to push this event uh, I want to send this event and then on the other side there's uh, you know objects that listen to it and then they do something with that data and this is also something that so this is basically what what in angular 2 will uh will be the 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 pattern that you would use if you want to watch um if you want to watch something in the application so there was before in angular 1 there is this function called scope watch and you could say okay scope watch and then you can pass scope watch a variable or a, a scope variable that would change over time maybe so and if that changes because of a user action or or something then you know other um parts of your application that know of that score watch they could change or react to it and so th- all that stuff just kind of goes away and it's just get gets more generic and it's just they basically just use the uh the patterns from the rxjs library to do that and it's what's interesting is that this kind of stuff appeared in the talks from uh Some people on the Angular, like on the latest Angular conferences, people were basically using RxJS in their code examples, but there was not a lot of explanation about what this is and why this is now used with Angular so much and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, um, it seems to be like a a, a new development, and I hope that there's going to be more talk about that and more document documentation
1: and stuff like that so you were saying that it it's going to be used for in angular for the application to talk to the server so there this is sort of like also i guess an abstraction layer on top of whatever the communication would be if it's rest or whatever
0: yeah so you so um so i've seen i've seen some some example like an example application and how it looked there was that they would they would um talk to a server with actually i don't know which library they use for that but they would talk to a server and then return a promise and then that promise will they generate an observable from that because there's there's a function on the observable object from the act reactive extensions library that generates an observable out of a promise basically and that is that is that in that in that code it was it was the basic way how they would talk to a server and and kind of uh and get that data from the server into your application was through a promise that gets turned into an observable, and then, uh, yeah, you know, and then and then basically that gets passed. So that happens in in an Angular service, which is just a class, like an ES6 class, and and exposes an API, and then and then the UI components of that application, they can use that API from that service, and um, so basically, yeah, and they and they just say, okay, whatever comes back from this API at some point, I'm gonna I'm gonna bind this to my to my value that is binded to to uh, the HTML in my view, and whenever that observable um, Resolves or sends the data, it just appears. So at least that's how it's going to be in Angular 2. Angular 2 will totally embrace and support observ- observables, which means that um, you can basically tell Angular 2, hey, I'm using observables. And that will also speed up Angular 2 because, because of that push mechanism. Um, the, the parts that are listening or the parts that of your application of your UI that are subscribed to those observables, they will be notified by that push. And only um, if, they, if they get notified by that push, Angular will actually check if something changed in the value and then update that part of your application of your, of your UI. And other components who were not notified by anything, they will just be ignored And not touched by the change detection so they're so they they're going to use reactive extensions to um optimize the performance um of angular basically in order to find out what to update and what not to update and stuff like that
1: how does this relate to this um two-way data binding that's always been talked about or was talked about where um it sounded like that was something similar. What's the difference there, or how does this compare to that?
2: Like knockout, right? Have you used knockout JS? Sounds really similar to that.
0: Well, so the the two way data binding, um, as far as I understand it, um, the the, one, the biggest example was in Angular. One was one of the demos uh, that that you learned in the beginning, is where you put. Um, an input field into your like Angular template, and then you can t- can uh, add that attribute called ngModel to it, and basically say you know whatever you type into that input field is gets kind of fed into um, a model variable, and then in other places of your application you can kind of read you can you can say bind to this variable that to that uh ng model variable or whatever and then the ui updates itself on the fly while you're typing into the input field so so it was that was the two-way data binding thing right Mm -hmm. so and uh, that is something that is completely that is completely um basically people are how do you say that disencouraged or
1: discouraging yeah is
0: people are discouraged to use that at all so angular 2 will not come with two-way data binding at all um it comes with change detection so what that means is like the binding from you know whatever comes from the back from the from the services from the server and stuff like that it will when, when, uh, when you have like use user observable and the observable says, hey, I have more data from the server and it says push, uh, it will bind that to the UI. But whatever you do in the UI is not binded back to anything that then goes back into other places in the UI. So, so per, default, the default is is one way data, data binding, and you can you can um, you have low level functions or possibilities, as far as I know, to re implement two way data binding in Angular two, but it's discouraged because the performance is very bad. Mm-hmm. Well, it was one of the biggest problems when it came to performance in Angular one.
1: So, so actually, is the, it sounds like though the sort of the end result is the is similar or the same and it's just the underlying mechanics are different is that correct or
0: yeah the mechanics are different and um, yeah it's really just it's basically what is changing is the the architecture the in, in, interiors of the application and how it does change detection and stuff like that and um and it can just this um, embracing of reactive extensions and functional programming so it works better with with immutable data it works better with uh, functional programming and and kind of uh, like this whole re-render re-render state all the time whenever state changes you can just go ahead and say re-render because the change detection similar to react and ember will figure out what what it really has to change in the DOM, you know?
1: And it's so it's big. all together, it's, it's more performant than the, the previous solution, I guess.
0: Exactly, yeah, yeah, all together. So Angular 1 is already pretty performant and Angular 2 is going to be like four or five times faster than that. And then depending depending on if you're using observables or immutable data, it will even it will even be more performant because the the whole change detection thing like is already in angular 2 as far as i know so from what i've read is already much more performant than this whole scope digest loop thing that they used in in, in angular 1 but uh when you when you add this observable thing or um immutable data it will be much faster because it it be, because that kind of that information that it gets from the observables, basically, that it can wait on the push and then check, okay, wh- which parts of my UI are subscribed to that push event, then they know that they only have to check those parts of the UI. They don't have to check all of it, right? So mm-hmm. they can re- reduce that. So so it gets even faster if you if you kind of use observables and also immutable data. Data by, uh, immutable data structures because with the immutable data structures, um, you only check. You basically you have, you have uh, lists of data, and if you push something into that list, then you get a whole new object, and then basically they can check if. Um, they just have to check references to find yeah, out. The if fast, yeah, right? the diffing is very fast. Yeah, the diffing is super fast. So. Mm-hmm.
1: So those things would speed speed it up even more.
0: But I I don't feel like I did a really good job explaining this. But
1: this well, I this think is it was a-, a very good introduction. It makes me want to go and like read a bunch of stuff. I feel like oh man, it's like so much I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like I think Khalil, if you can, if you can, if you can pick out like your top two or three resources on this, so we can put it in the show notes. I think. I think our users or listeners would really really love to like follow up cuz you've you've opened up a can of worms whether you like it or not. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'm definitely I'm also I'm happy to to put in the links of course and uh, but this is also something that I'm kind of because because I will have to I will have to prepare a little presentation at work cuz we have to kind of make decisions on how we want to structure our applications uh, or our main application that we're going to be working on. And, you know, do we want to use Flux? Do we want to use observables? And how do we use it and all this stuff? So I'm going to get deeper into it. So maybe in one of the future episodes, I can I can kind of follow up and maybe try to make it even more, uh, even better to understand. Because right now I'm still in the process of kind of figuring it out. And I feel like I'm getting there. I'm, I'm very excited about this. I f- think this is super interesting and because ultimately it really leads to very elegant kind of code and relationships between the code and um this whole just functional programming like dealing with data uh, in a, in a functional way um there's a little interactive course that I that I will also link to in the show notes that's also by Jafar Hussein this is really super it's just mind-blowing how elegant some of the things
1: are that you can do so it's very exciting it'll be an ongoing topic and we will learn with you because yeah there's a few things there that i I would be interested in hearing like your experiences with debugging this kind of stuff because i've had experience with um you know observing or, or subscribing to events it it makes your code nicely decoupled but finding problems in it is a whole other issue then but um Yeah, and that's exactly one of the things
0: I think that observables is trying to solve. Ah, okay, nice. Because
1: it gives you those, it gives you errors,
0: if -hmm. something happens and stuff. So it adds that on top. Yeah, okay. But yeah, I definitely have to also use it a little bit in order to, to and get a little bit more familiar with it in order to really, uh, yeah, be able to talk about it properly and with more ease.
2: Uh, that's, I I think that's everything, everything that we learn the first time we learn it. We're just like, uh, there's the thing and the stuff and it all comes together and then the stuff, things, things happen. Um, (laughs) and then, and then as, as we, you know, as we start to make the understanding of how every single piece fits together, then we can develop a story and stories are much easier to tell than just random facts. So Once you start building things in depth, you're going to have an amazing story, and you're going to tell us that story.
0: Yeah.
1: That's what I'm going to (laughs) do.
2: Cool. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that's, yeah, that's everything for this week.
1: Yeah. I believe so.
0: I think so. Sweet. All right. All right. So um, let's just uh, reiterate where people can find people on the web. So Raquel, where are you on the Um, Webernets?
2: I'm on the Webernets, yeah. Um, so if you find the the third tube to the right, uh, follow that down, uh, and then and then slide down the sixth tube, going down. But you start in New Jersey,
0: right? Or in right? California? Yeah, yeah. So it's okay. uh, no,
2: you have to you have to start. I don't know where you're. Uh, okay. Anyway, um, I'm I'm on Twitter. Uh, Rockbot is my handle. I'm. Uh, that's just the easiest way to get a hold of me. Honestly, if you tweet at me, I'm more likely to respond than if you do anything else. You could even try emailing me. that, that mm. That's a, a good effort, but if you really want me to respond, Twitter, Twitter's the way to go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, Rockbot on Twitter.:
1: Awesome.: Penny? All right. Uh, I'm on H. on Twitter. I remembered this time, see? <laughs>
0: I didn't forget the age. Yeah <laughs> There nice. you go. Cool, cool. I, and I'm uh, distilled hype on Twitter, and um, uh, this podcast is reactive pod on Twitter, and you will find the show notes on reactive.audio. and that's I it for it. this week. Thanks for listening.
2: Yeah, rate us on on iTunes and ask us questions, and come to our Slack channel.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I yeah. somehow I have to. I didn't. We, we for some reason we can't put uh, uh we can't put up any. Uh, you know, external links like just like a random external links. So I can't put a link to the Slack channel. So basically, you have to go to descriptive.audio uh and so our other podcast, and then click on the Slack chat thing there, and then you can get into it. But we'll figure it. We'll figure it better.
2: I'm sure we can put a link in in the Twitter in the Twitter bio.
0: Yeah, in the Twitter bio, we can put that. Yeah, that's a Let's good idea. Let's, yeah.
2: do okay. Let's do that. Let's do that.
1: Okay.
0: Bye everyone. Bye. <laughs> Bye.